Well, what is in a name? Uh, well, there's a lot, you know. Um, so we have some young parents in the room. When you have the opportunity to name your child, it's something you stop and you think about. You know, this name is going to, in some ways, shape or reflect identity. I've had the chance to, work, to, to converse and, and work together with my wife in naming our three children. Um, I actually remember uh, overseas having uh, uh, several people in, in Mozambique, Africa, ask me if I would name their children. I was like, wow, that is, what, what, a, what, a, what a responsibility, you know, and, and look for biblical strong names. Well, we've got a lot of great names in this church, uh, and I don't, we have some visitors here as well, so I don't know everyone's name in this room, uh, but is there anybody here by any chance named Rahab? I don't, no one's raising their hands. Ha, have any of you known a Rahab? Okay, we've got, we've got, you, you know Ray, is, is she around still? Is she a family or a friend? She's in Africa. Okay, she, is she African? Okay. Has any, anyone else? Well, you know, maybe, you know, why is it? Why is it that we don't name our daughters Rahab? Maybe, maybe after this sermon, one of you would consider naming a daughter Rahab. Now, let's, let's do something before we jump into the, the text. Um, and, and look back at the story in the Old Testament. Um, look, if you will, again at the, just the front of your bulletin here, which is the, the verse that my, my brother Ken just read, um, verse 31 of Hebrews chapter 11. And let's just look at these words, all right? And, and I want you, as we read this together, um, I want you to try to think or imagine that you did not know the backstory here, okay? Uh, you, if you had never heard this story before, would you expect to find these words in the Bible, right? Or, or is this more like a, a spy novel or something? By faith, Rahab the prostitute, I mean, okay, hold on a minute. You got the word faith and three words later, prostitute. We don't normally link those two words together, do we? By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedience, I'm sorry, with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. We got all kinds of stuff going on in this verse, right? Uh, but first, let's stop and think about the whole background of the book of Hebrews that, that would have brought about Mystery Man, who's the guy that we call uh, the writer, because we really don't know who he is, um, who, who happened to write this verse that we just read. Well, the book of Hebrews was written to a struggling church, we believe, in Italy, that was a, a church predominantly made up of Jews who had converted to Christianity, who had come to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and was the Son of God. But they were struggling because they were starting to get persecuted by two sides, all right? Uh, they, they, were, they were getting picked on by fellow Jews, people from their own culture, who were uh, giving them a rough time for having converted to Christianity. And, and so they were uh, spending more time now, we, we think um, the, the persecution was kind of uh, in an uptick. But also, the, the Roman government had a policy, one race, one religion. And so persecution was starting to increase from the Romans against Christians. And, and, and so the Jews were accusing these Christians of being um, uh, heretics, right, and of, of not respecting the emperor. And so there was a lot of temptation for these, these new believers to revert to Judaism. And so Mystery Man writes them this, this letter, uh, this, we call it a, a, an epistle or a letter, um, to the Hebrews, to the Jews in this church. And he makes his letter really all about the, the supreme worthiness of Christ. And so we've been working through Hebrews for not quite a year now, maybe the last eight or nine months. And we've seen uh, uh, again and again all these ways, and often he goes back to these stories and pictures from the Old Testament, 
right? Why Christ is superior to Abraham, why, why, why Christ is superior to Moses and to the law and to the, to the temple and to the whole rite of temple worship, how all of that pointed to Jesus Christ, we see in this, in this letter. And, and so he urges them to endure in their faith in Christ, to not backslide, to not slip away, to not lose the prize. We're gonna see next week uh, the, these fam- we're going to look at the famous verses, actually not next week, but in two weeks, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, how it all comes down to this race where we're, we're following our, our Savior and our hero who's gone before Jesus in this, this, in this race of endurance of faith. But right now we, we've, been, we've been spending the last two months or so going through chapter 11, which is really this kind of a, kind of a hall of faith. And so mystery man goes back and he... he, he appeals, he brings up all these stories of faithful men and women from the Old Testament who walked by faith and not by sight. And, and oftentimes we see courage or boldness of faith when we stop and we think about their stories. And so he begins this hall of faith of chapter 11 by saying now, by, by basically describing faith for us. He says now, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, if, if we saw Christ and we saw all the, the great works that he did and we saw if we could see him in heaven right now, right, if it was just crystal clear, it wouldn't require faith to, to follow him. But because we don't yet, we can be convicted of the truth of these things we don't yet see. We need faith. And hope is closely related. And so he, he talks about heroes like these ancient men of old who lived to be hundreds of years old, like Abel and Enoch and, and Noah. And he shares their stories of faith. And then he gets into the patriarchs like Abraham and, and Sarah. And, and, and then he talks about the life of Moses and, and Joshua. And so by now you might expect uh, David to come out. Right? I mean, David was certainly a man of faith. You think about him going up against the giant Goliath, a, a hero of faith, a man after God's own heart. But no, David only gets a slight nod here in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, his name is just mentioned in verse 32, but nothing about him, and it's just in a list of, of names. The, the final hero of faith here, whose story is summarized in a verse, is a woman, and she's a Gentile. And, and you got to understand, when the, when the Jews heard that word Gentile, they didn't think, we think, yeah, one of us, most of us, right, aren't Jews. They, they thought pagan. That's what they thought. You know, um, you know kind of a, a kafir, you know, the way the Muslims look at kafirs. They thought a person who doesn't worship the one true God, an idol worshiper. That's what they thought. All right? So he, 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 he mentions the faith. And he brings up to, to mind the story of a woman who came out of a, a pagan nation who was a prostitute, and her name was Rahab. Now, ladies, maybe you're thinking, hey, um, it's about time for a woman to be listed here. I mean, we've been talking about all these dudes, right? Uh, all these men of faith. And yes, we've seen Sarah listed, but she was kind of in the shadow of Abraham, so why not Deborah, the judge, or Rachel, who was a woman of faith, or Samuel's mother, Hannah, you remember her prayer to God for a son, and then her faithfulness to devote her son back to the Lord, or to Ruth, or to Queen Esther. These are all women that we name our daughters after, right? I mean, I've known Esthers, and we have an Esther in the church, and, uh, and Ruthie, and, and Hannah, and, and Deborah and, and Rachel's. So maybe you're wondering, why does it have to be a prostitute? What can we possibly learn from a, from a prostitute about genuine faith? Well, let's look at the story. So turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, back in the Old Testament, back to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2, we read the story of Rahab and the spies. Joshua 2 verse 1 begins, and, and we, we looked at Joshua and the battle of Jericho last week, 
okay? Uh, this happens before the, the, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, all right? Right after God had come to Joshua and had said, be strong, be courageous, I'm with you. You're gonna lead these, the, the, this, you're gonna lead the children of Israel into this land and you're to take it, all right? You're to conquer it uh, for the purpose of establishing my kingdom on earth. That's what the, that's what Israel was to be in Old Testament times. God's kingdom where God would reign on earth. And, and that would be a light to the nations. But the, the land had to be cleansed of its wickedness. And wickedness it was full of. We're talking child sacrifice, uh, 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 idolatry of the worst order. And, and these cities had given, these pagans had given themselves to this. And so the Israelites were charged with cleansing the land of all that wickedness at the edge of the sword. All right, and so the way it begins, the way this entire uh, mission starts is in verse one of Joshua chapter two. And so Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. I've got a map here just to kind of give you a, a visual here. Um, what we have here, I don't know how well you can see Jericho circled there, first big battle, uh, a, you know, a, a fortified city we, we mentioned last week. Um, archaeologists are saying the, probably the oldest fortified city that we've discovered on earth, uh, and it was quite a city, uh, had uh, natural water, so they were, it was designed to, to really kind of be a watch guard for the whole Canaanite and Amorite land to the west. So they had to take Jericho if they're going to be successful and move into the land and attack some of these other, some of the other cities. And so you can see the Jordan River, and Israel was camped on the, on the, on the east side. Uh, you can barely see Shatim, Abel Shatim on the right, this, this, this place where they camped. So the spies would have gone to the north, far north on the east side of the Jordan River where there were fjords. Uh, there there, there were uh, kind of shallows where a man could wade across. Maybe you have to swim across, but at flood stage where you could get across. All right, and and so uh, we know that for the whole company, the whole the whole uh, uh, camp of the Israelites, the Lord did a miracle and actually stopped the Jordan River for them to cross. But these two spies either swam or were able to actually wade across, probably on the north side. And then what they would have done was they would have worked their way ways through kind of the hills and mountains and caves to the west side of Jericho and would have come in disguised as merchants, as if they were coming from another Canaanite town or or, or city. Okay, if that makes sense. So they would not have just walked across the plains of Jericho. They would have been seen. Um, they, they, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the Canaanites knew that um, these, these um, children of Israel were on the other side of the Jordan. They, they knew that they had already engaged in several battles where they, they, God had given them victory. And, and so they were feared. Okay, and so the, the, the Jericho was already in a state of watch and wariness before the Israelites ever crossed the Jordan. All right, so let's keep looking. I just wanted to give you that little background as I think it might kind of help you better understand the story. So continuing in verse, verse, verse one and, and then in verse two, and they came, these spies came, and they went into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, you may wonder, well, why would these two young men who were followers of Yahweh who were sent out handpicked by Joshua, why would they go lodge in the house of a prostitute? Understand that in the context, these guys were on a risky mission, right? They didn't know if they were going to be discovered or not. Uh, when, when you're about to maybe die, you're probably not going to go lapse into moral failure, right? Why would you go walk into the house of a prostitute? Well, first of all, we read as we get into the story, that Rahab's house was along the city wall. So it was very architecturally kind of interesting. There was an actual window to the outer wall. Jericho actually probably had an inner wall as well. All right, so along the outer wall of the city, this, this house was kind of built into the wall, so there would have been a, a, a place for a potential escape, and I'm sure that was on their minds. All right, if we had a, if we had a, if we had a you know, run for it, um, you know, here's an escape plan. But more likely, it's because Rahab is running an inn. The, the, the Hebrew word for prostitute is synonymous with innkeeper. Now, that doesn't mean that she was a woman of good reputation. Uh, the truth is, in the ancient world, women who ran inns were prostitutes. 
Okay, sad, sad, sad to say. In, 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 in an ancient, this is, a, this is a, maybe one of the oldest occupations on earth, a very sinful occupation that, that helps us understand that there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, we humans, apart from God's grace, are wicked. And, and so, uh, but if you were a merchant coming from another city, that, that, that's where you would stay. And this was a place where they would be able to blend in. This is a place where people would expect strangers to stay. But there is no suggestion in the text at all of any sin on the part of the spies. This was just a way for them to blend in. But Jericho was basically a fortified village. And everybody knew each other's business, and their cover was blown. Okay, their, their uh, mission of subterfuge and of, of staying anonymous ended in failure. Because we'll see in verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Somehow they were discovered, and somehow they were followed to the house of Rahab. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to Jericho as far as the forts. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now Rahab took a huge risk. And I think this is really important for us to try to understand here. Um, A huge risk to her own life and frankly, to the life of her extended family by choosing to protect these spies. It was known that they were Israelite. They were from a, uh, a, a huge group of people with a huge arm that, that could field a huge army, huge military force that was bent on total destruction of Jericho and of the land. Uh, so these were the, that she was harboring the enemy. So this was an act of treason against her nation and against her people. And had she been found out, had these men been discovered on her roof, she would have been tortured to death. It would not have been a quick one. It would have been gruesome, most likely, for her and her family. So this was a huge risk, a huge decision she, t- she made to side with the people of God, to protect the people of God, and to tell her lie. Now, the New Testament commends Rahab for her trust in God and her decision to protect the men, but it doesn't mention the explicit lie, actually I count three of them, that she told. And, and this has generated all kinds of discussion uh, from, from folks who are like, hey, no, this was a sin to lie, even though she was trying to do a good thing and protect, to others who would say, um, listen, this was in a, a situation of war. And in warfare, deceit is part of the game. Uh, I mean, think about that. Uh, uh, killing and deceit are the two big things you do in combat. I mean, you, you constantly want to outmaneuver and, and throw your enemy off. I mean, we do that in the game of chess, even, right? And so some people would say, well, you know, so being that she had chosen the right side, she was now engaged in, you know, this was just part of subterfuge and, and this wasn't morally wrong, right? My take... Um, which I, I wouldn't go to my death for this, but I'm, I'm along, I, I, I would agree with Calvin, who wrote that as to the falsehood, we must admit that though it was done for a good purpose, it was not free from fault. For those who hold what is called a dutiful lie to be altogether excusable, do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. But still, in the words of another pastor, God recognized the motive behind the act, and the motive was faith. Rahab had very limited knowledge of God, right? She had never received the Ten Commandments. She didn't have the law or all that God said to his people about being people of truth. But even though she had very little revelation, 
Listen to her profound words of faith in these next few verses as she converses with these Israelite spies. So verse eight, before the men lay down, or, or another translation could be before they settled in for the night, uh, hidden away as they were, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. By the way, that had been 40 years before. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as, that as I have dealt kindly, that the Hebrew word there is chesed. You've probably heard that word before. Loving kindness, right? Um, often we think of God's loving kindness as chesed. Well, as she says, as I have dealt kindly with you, and she certainly had, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, now what strikes me, beyond Rahab's understanding of God's sovereignty here, right? Um, I mean, she had just only heard from the Lord, probably from her patrons, right? Merchants from other, other cities. She had heard stories, and she had come to believe, even with the very limited revelation that she had, that God alone was the Lord, the truth. What, what strikes me beyond that is her boldness here. I mean, Rahab was a tough cookie under pressure. And she was strategic here. You know, wise as a serpent. Biblical faith isn't dumb. You don't check your brain at the door when you follow Christ. And boy, we see that with Rahab. This was a, this was a smart and a, and a shrewd lady. So we read in verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built in the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you. So in other words, she's telling them, think back to the map. Instead of going across the plains of Jericho where they've been looking for you, go west, right? Go up into the mountains, the hills. She says, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. Verse 17, the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house in the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. Bear in mind that they didn't yet know God's plan to just bring the walls down. Okay, that, that's revealed later in Joshua chapter 5. So they're thinking, we're going to have to take this city house by house, street by street, after we have managed to breach the walls, and we need a way to know, you know, to protect you. Here's how you're to mark your home. But if a hand is laid on anyone with you in the house, his blood will be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, when we think about that scarlet cord, if you happen to go into a restroom today here on campus, you'll see a picture of a, of a scarlet cord, right? We, we think of the, the sign of Rahab. And throughout church history, particularly some of our early church fathers from the from the Alexandrian school who really loved typology and symbols, okay? There's been a connection that they've made 
between that scarlet cord and the blood of Christ. I've even read things like, you know, as, as the spies were rappelling down the rope, you know, it was like they were, you know, uh, you know the, the blood of Christ, you know, and all this connection. But the thing is, there's actually no typological connection made in Scripture between the scarlet cord and the blood of Christ. But there does seem to be here a reminder of the Passover, which does clearly point to Jesus Christ. And think about it for a moment, okay? Uh, the red blood on the doorpost. Well, we have here a red cord in the window. And the purpose of each was to distinguish the house from other homes. And the family was to stay the night, was to stay in the home together for safety with the Passover from the angel of death that came and, and destroyed the unbelieving families of the Egyptians, the firstborn in those homes. Well, here we have the family, Rahab's family was to stay in, in the, the house that was marked by the, the scarlet cord for protection, for safety, not from the angel of death, but from the army of death. Because that's, that's what the Israelites were for the, for the Canaanites, for the Amorites. So in both cases, what we see here is faith expressed through obedience. Francis, Francis Schaeffer wrote, when the children of Israel were about to leave Egypt, they were given the blood of the Passover lamb under which to be safe. When the people were about to enter the land, they were met by a different but parallel sign, a red cord hanging from the window of a believer. So when we look back to the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, we remember that Jesus shed his blood for us so that we might not be destroyed in God's righteous wrath of hell and that we may have eternal life in heaven. And I think I think it's fair for us when we even think about Rahab's faith marked by that scarlet cord. I think it's very fair to look at the Passover and to be brought in our minds to Christ and his blood which covered us and, 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 and is, what is our only hope for safety. And I would just urge if there's anyone here who is not under the blood of Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you, you are in a very dangerous place. You're not in that home of protection. So today, let today be the day that you just simply bow before him and, and, and ask him to save you. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins and, and rose, from, rose from the dead. Well, let's learn together. Let's, let's reflect. Now that we've read the story of Rahab and, and you have, it's fresh on your minds, let's just think about together uh, how we can learn from the prostitute Rahab's faith. Right? We've, we've learned about faith from Noah and from Abraham and, and last week from Joshua and the Israelites who fought this battle of Jericho. Let's now flip that a little bit and, 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 and put your mind inside Jericho, right? Uh, in this, 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 this awful moment for them and, and, and learn about one person's faith. All right? And I, I see three things and you could probably come up with some others. But ways that I think we can learn from Rahab herself about faith. And the first is that Rahab's faith was gutsy. If, if you're following along in the notes, uh, the sermon notes, or you're writing them out, that's G-U-T-S-Y. Gutsy. She had limited revelation, but she recognized and believed with conviction that God was sovereign. She knew that her only hope was God's grace. Her only hope was God's grace. There was nothing she could do to save herself. And so she appealed to God's grace. Listen again to her words. She says in verse 9 of Joshua chapter 2, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And when Rahab believed this, she went all in. She put her life and that of her family on the line for it. That's why James, in the New Testament, 
chooses to highlight Rahab's faith as being genuine. And that's what, with all this, you know, uh, works stuff that James is talking about, he's not teaching that we're not saved by true faith alone. What he's saying is, you're not saved by just intellectually believing something. It's got to penetrate your heart and change your life and how you live. And so your r- real true faith works. That's what James is trying to say. And so he goes to Rahab as an example of that kind of faith, of a gutsy faith that, that works, that, that moves a person to action. And so here's what he says. He says, and in the same way, that's after talking about Abraham's faith. He says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, Rahab's faith was costly. She she risked everything. Faith is not a barren intellectual process. True faith issues in action even when it costs. Rahab's faith was salted with sin. She did not understand everything, but she trusted God and her faith worked as she sent out the spies and lowered the scarlet cord. True faith works. Now, when we look to the end of the book of Joshua, we read another story in which Joshua draws a line in the sand. His job was done. They had conquered the land, but already he saw that, that his people were starting to falter with their faith. They were starting to, to, to consider going after false gods of the very people that they had been called to wipe out. And so he challenged the fickle Israelites to choose you this day whom you will serve. And he says famously, but as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, that was the kind of choice Rahab made at great danger to herself and her family. Like Moses, back when he was in Egypt and chose to leave Egypt to be identified with the people of God, so Rahab chose to identify with the people of God. We read later that she became a member of the covenant community of faith. At the end of Joshua chapter 6, we read, after the battle of Jericho, Verse 25, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she was, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab became a member of the covenant community and actually a a member in good standing of the covenant community. So these seeds of faith that we see of hers in Jericho bloomed into a true God-fearing godly lifestyle type faith in which she actually married a prince of Judah and became, as we'll see in a minute, uh, a woman of, of, of great virtue and greatly respected within the covenant community of, of faith. So Rahab's faith that we see in seed form here while she's still living in this pagan city of Jericho was gutsy. And her faith also brought hope. That's her second point. Rahab's faith brought hope. She obeyed the spies' instructions. She somehow, and I don't know how she did it, because if they talked, that would have been incredibly dangerous, but she managed to keep her extended family inside her home throughout the assault and the collapse of her city. And at the end of the day, one small section of that wall remained intact with a scarlet rope hanging from a window. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for rope is the same word for hope. You can imagine Rahab looking out that window as the Israelite army circled her city day after day. The the sounds of those seven shofars announcing coming destruction. Rahab was hoping against hope as she looked out her window with that scarlet cord faithfully tied that those two spies and their commander Joshua would remember and honor their word to her. Rahab, who had the word of two spies, is a good example to us of hope. She had the word of two spies who may or may not have been faithful men, right? We have the word of God, which gives us a rock-solid 
reason for hope of eternal life if you're trusting in Christ. So brothers and sisters, be admonished again by the mystery man, the writer of Hebrews, who in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 tells us, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So Rahab's faith, even in seed form, was gutsy, and it brought hope, but it also, and this is point three, it also brought blessing to others. It brought blessing to others. For one, it saved the spies. Her decision to risk her life, to be identified with the people of God, motivated by very limited revelation, but belief that God was the Lord, the sovereign one in heaven and on earth, the one worth following. That decision saved the spies' lives. They would have been doomed if not for her intervention to torture and death, most certainly. But it also saved her family. In the heat of the battle cry, Joshua made sure that Rahab and her family were protected. Go back in your minds to Joshua chapter 6. We looked at, we ended with this last week, verse 16, right? At the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. But he said more. He said, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So her faith blessed other people by saving their lives. The spies, her extended family, her parents, her brothers, their households, who all hid in that little home. But you know, God used Rahab's faith in the line of Christ to actually bless us with a Messiah. We, we, we don't realize this until we get to the New Testament, but when we read Matthew chapter 1, that genealogy, right? Maybe, maybe your eyes glaze over when you hit the genealogies. You're like, what could I possibly learn from a genealogy, right? Well, what? Guess what? We can learn something here. Rahab was in the line of Christ. We read this in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, who we know was the father of David. So what we, what we realize here is that after she married a prince of Judah, Rahab became the mother of Boaz. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, was Rahab's son. You wonder if if that had something to do with his heart for an outsider, right? For an underdog, for, a, uh, for a, a woman of faith outside the camp who could come in and become part of the covenant community. Even more importantly, Rahab here is highlighted as being in the line of Jesus Christ. And so here's the point I want to make with this third point, is that when you step out with gutsy faith like Rahab, you never know what kind of difference your faith will make in the lives of others. There's a lot of milk toast faith in this world, which may or may not even be real faith. When you step out with gutsy faith, you step out and you put your life on the line, you follow Jesus with all your heart, you're gonna change people's lives. You're gonna change people's lives. And that's why I think that maybe someone here should think about maybe one day naming their daughter Rahab. Hers is a beautiful story of redemption. She became a trophy of God's grace. And the Bible honors Rahab for her faith. And so should we. So as we prepare to land the plane, I've got three more things I want us to think about when we look at Rahab's life. Three practical applications for our lives. And the first is this, that let's just marvel together at God's grace when we think about the story of Rahab. Now, I, I wondered, as I read this text, as I read the text in, in James, why does, why do these authors always use the adjective prostitute to talk about Rahab? I mean, if she was with us, I'm pretty sure she'd be like, listen, can we get past that? Right? That's not who I am now. Right? That's, that's before Jesus. Right? I mean, you know, wh why do we have to always have the prostitute Rahab? I mean, that was before she came to know the Lord. 
right? And, and became part of the covenant community of faith. When she, be, when she did, she became a wife and a mother and a grandmother and a great-grandmother and a source of wisdom for people. So, so why, why do you have to keep bringing that up, the past? Well, both biblical authors here, writer of Hebrews, James, point to Rahab as a positive example. And I don't think they call her the prostitute Rahab to dishonor her memory, but to point to God's amazing grace. Here we have a pagan Amorite prostitute who believed and became a role model of faith for us. And even we see here on the eve of great judgment of the destruction of Jericho, we see God saving people. And I'm reminded that our God delights in mercy over judgment. You know, the the slaughter of the Amorites and the Malachites bring about all kinds of consternation, and another day we could talk about all that. But bear in mind that against that backdrop, we have this story of salvation. This is what God delights in doing. And not only saving random people, what we see here, even in this story of God cleansing an incredibly evil land of the Canaanites and Amorites to establish his kingdom on earth in the form of Old Testament Israel, we have a picture of his long-term purpose of grace. And that's a global rescue mission that is going to extend beyond Israel to all the peoples. And so here he saves an Amorite and her household who believed in the final hour. So we've got to marvel when we think of this story at God's grace and his purposes of grace. What might his plan be for you in that, in taking the gospel to the nations, both the ends of the earth and and, and, and people around us who maybe haven't yet fully come to understand or, or hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's marvel and be transformed in our thinking by his grace. Let's be careful not to despise others right? But to think about his grace. And let's also, and this is the second point, let's hate our own sin instead of hating the sinner. Well, you might say, well, I don't hate the sinner. I just hate their sin. Well, here's the point for you. Uh, I'm not sure you can. Be fixated on the sin of someone else without despising the person who does it. I don't think you or I are that sophisticated, such that we can really love the sinner and hate their sin. You know what I think we do when we're thinking about their sin? I think we despise the sinner too if we're thinking about their sin. So I've got a better idea for you, and for those of you who've been around, you've heard me say this before, uh, and I'm not the author, the original author of this sentiment or statement. I I learned this from a a, a Syrian Christian uh, professor that I had, who used to say, love the sinner, hate your own sin. And when you see something like prostitution, which I think we all agree with is, is sinful, let's stop and look at the ways that maybe we've been unfaithful to our Lord. Uh, is anybody here guilty of the sin of lust? I don't see hands in the air, but I know they'd all be there, right? If, you're, if, you're, if you've been around for a few years in this earth, right? Categorically, according to Jesus, we're all guilty. We're all Rahabs before a holy God, right? So we need to hate our own sin. And here's the thing. When we're critical of other people and thinking about their sin too much, we're often thinking too little about our own sin. We're minimizing it. And, and therefore, we're underappreciating God's grace in our lives, right? So we're thinking too much about their sin. We're thinking too little of our sin, and we're therefore thinking too little of God's grace. Pastor Kent Hughes wrote, anyone who looks down on Rahab had better beware For it is obvious that such a person has a defective doctrine of sin and does not understand the depths of human iniquity or the heights of the grace of God. All of us stand in Rahab's place in front of a holy God, and many of us are worse because she had such little knowledge. God is far more impressed with the genuine, humble faith of a sinner than with the outward righteousness of someone who thinks that they have kept their nose clean. Here's the truth. We in this room are all dirtier than we think. When we think that, when we stop and think that we're better than anybody else, 
part of the problem is likely that we're wrongly categorizing our sin, all right? We're, you know, well, sexual sin, that's on our list of nasty sins, and I'll, I'll even say it's on our cultural list, because every culture uh, perceives sin a little bit differently, okay? Um, you'll find, you spend time in Africa, you'll realize that Christians in Africa uh, might see adultery as a three on a scale of one to ten, but despising a brother, that's an eight. Well, we're the opposite, right? Adultery, man, that's, you know, killing someone, yeah, that's a little bit worse, maybe that's a ten. Um, but despising your brother, I mean, come on, you know, we, we just got to speak the truth. You read the Bible, there's a whole lot about honoring our brothers, Right? So we have cultural lenses on that we don't know we have on when we read the Bible that often leads to wrongly categorizing our sin to minimizing the stuff that maybe we struggle with, right? So we think the sin of self-dependence isn't a big deal. Let's go back to David, the hero David, also the sordid affair of Uriah and Bathsheba, right? An adulterer. A murderer, an abuser, a treasonous backstabber, David. And what happened when he sinned? Well, the gloves came off. I mean, the Lord disciplined David, right? I mean, he lost a child. Um, There was discipline there. But let's think about another sin of David that we often don't really pay much attention to. That came later. He numbered his men. When he numbered his men, the gloves of discipline really came off. And the punishment was severe because God takes self-reliance and robbing him of glory very seriously. Do do any of us do that sometimes? Do you get the point? That that, that maybe uh, when, when we're being judgmental of other sins, maybe part of the problem is that the way we categorize our own is off. So when outsiders look at us as a church, what kind of attitude do you think they perceive? And these are non, you know, someone who's unchurched, when they look at our drive-by and they see our, our parking lot, maybe, right? Or maybe if they'd even come and visit. Maybe, maybe one of you is here and you don't normally come to church. What do you see? A bunch of people who don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with girls that do? Is that what you see? Or do you see people who believe that there is a beautiful Savior, Jesus, who loves to save sinners like us? How how do we want to present our value system to the world? So let's hate our own sin when we think about Rahab and the Rahabs of the world, right? So let's marvel at God's grace. Let's think about our own sin. Let's hate our own sin and love the sinner, and hate our sin. And then finally, let's love the underdog. Understand God's heart for the lost, and and be encouraged by the story that no sinner out there is outside the possibility of God's radical saving grace. So this story gives hope for those that we love who are living far from God's will for their lives. So let's keep praying for them. Keep praying that God would reach them and touch them with his grace. Remembering that Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. In fact, we read in Luke 7 about another prostitute who came hundreds of years later who anointed Jesus' feet with a mixture of expensive ointment and tears, that of her own, because she was weeping. She had encountered his grace, and she wiped his feet with her hair and kissed his feet, and he let her. wonder how you'd react if I did something like that. He let her. His host, a Pharisee, was indignant at the impropriety. And here's Jesus' response, Luke 7, 44. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, who was the Pharisee, whose home he was in, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus came for the Rahabs and for all who know that they are sick. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, those who are well have no need, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And what he really meant was those who think they are well have no need of a physician, but those who know they are sick. He said, I came not to call the righteous or those who think they're righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, maybe you're sitting here today unsure of your eternal destiny. Maybe you're burdened, rightly so, by your sins against the Lord. Maybe you're thinking, if God could extend mercy, and if he could save a sinner like Rahab, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe he would, sinner save, maybe he would save a sinner like me. Maybe, maybe you're wondering, after all the things I've done, could God even really use me to make a difference? Here's the truth of the gospel. He will, if you will trust Christ, if you'll look to Christ with the faith of Rahab. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of your providence, your sovereign work of rescue and salvation, even, even in the, on the eve of great judgment. Lord, we thank you that you delight in saving sinners like us. And we thank you, Lord, for the example we have of faith that came from the former prostitute, Rahab. Lord, I, I pray that you would, you would help us to be bold in our faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us the hope of Rahab, Lord, and that, that you would use us to be a blessing to others. Father, help us to, to love others greatly, to despise our own sin, and to always look to our great Savior who makes us clean before you, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.